Well, what is up? And welcome to Northridge Church. We're excited to have you. Whether you're joining us from one of our campuses, you're with us online, or you're going to watch this as a podcast later, thank you for being here at Northridge Church. And man, I just have this feeling, I hope you have it, it's going to be a good Sunday. It's just going to be a great Sunday. I hope you're excited this morning. And you know, before we dive into the message this morning, I just want to challenge a group of people. You know, next week is a huge weekend in the life of our church. We're having an open baptism. And I really want to challenge two groups in our church. The first group is those of you who, you know what, you've gone public in your faith. You've made the decision to follow Jesus and you've been baptized. And I want to challenge you to make a commitment to be here next week because I think it's going to be moving in your life because we're going to celebrate all that God has been doing in in people's lives at Northridge Church over four campuses. So I want to challenge you to be here. But the second group is the group of people who, you know, you know Christ as your personal savior. You've made that decision, but for some reason, baptism scares you. You don't have all your questions answered, or you're just nervous about it. And if that's you, I just want to challenge you. God commands us in obedience to go public through baptism. Once we meet Jesus, our next step is baptism. And so if you've got questions, or you're, you're nervous about it, or you're afraid, man, on our connections card at the bottom is just this box. It says open baptism. If you would check that and give us your information, we will follow up with you, and we will have a, a conversation with you and answer any questions that you might have. Walk you through the journey, and so you won't be afraid, but I want to challenge you to make that commitment. Well, about five years ago, five years ago, my wife and I, we made a pretty risky decision. We decided that we were going to flip a house, and so we lived in Georgia, and we thought, you know, with my wife's design ability and my uh, ability to do some construction stuff, we thought it was, a, it was a risk, but it might be worth the reward, and so we found the house that we were going to be flipping, and I, I wish you could have seen this place. I mean, it was utterly a disaster. In fact, it was the only house that I've ever walked through that I had to put a mask on because the smell of dog urine and feces was so bad that you couldn't walk in and breathe that stuff in. It was completely destroyed. The stairs were falling in. The drywall was disgusting. It looked like someone unleashed about 300 pit bulls and said, eat whatever you want and poop and pee wherever you'd like. It was a disaster. And so Over the course of two months, my wife and I, we slowly and surely began to restore this place. We put new floors in, new drywall, we painted the walls, we restored bathrooms and kitchens, and over the course of two months, it was amazing to watch this place go from a disaster to a house that somebody would actually live in. In fact, when we were done, we walked through the house, and it was just amazing to see the restoration process, and so we did decided it was time to get a realtor and and sell this house. And so each week that we had appointments, every week I would get my lawn tractor and Ashley and I would go back to the house and she would decorate and clean and I would mow the lawn and do some trimming. And so about three weeks after we finished restoring the house, we got in my truck and we headed to the house and, you know, I was going to mow the lawn and Ashley was going to do some cleaning because we had some showings coming up. And as we walked into the house, I opened the garage door, and as we walked into the the garage door, we heard this unique sound. It almost sounded like a a baby sound machine of ocean waves going. 
And immediately my heart just sank and I, I, I kind of sped to the, to the door. And as I opened the door into the house in the hallway, water began rushing out towards me. We walked into the house and immediately, my wife is about eight months pregnant with Joelle at this point, and she walks into the house and she gets a glimpse of what has taken place and she just immediately starts crying. And I know like these aren't pregnant hormone cries, these are like, oh my word, we're in trouble cries. And so as I begin to walk into the house, the drywall from the ceiling is down. The floors, the hardwood floors are all buckled and there's water everywhere. I run and I shut the water off and I realize that the master bathroom, which, you know, in our favor was at the top floor. And the pressure of the water blew a, a, a thing under the, the vanity of the bedroom and it went from the top floor all the way down to the finished basement. And everything was completely ruined. And I looked at my wife who was bawling and all our hard work our sweat, our hands were calloused. Everything that we put into this house was ruined. It was destroyed. And man, we were devastated. There was a glimmer of hope though. I thought, man, we have insurance on this house. It should be covered, right? So I called my insurance agency and they said, hey, we've got bad news. Uh, when a house is vacant, we don't cover flood damage. So I sat there and I thought, what, what are we gonna do? I mean, this house is yet again destroyed. Everything we put into it is ruined. And man, we were, we were completely devastated. And what's interesting is I, I looked at myself and I said these words to myself. I said, there's no coming back from this. This can't be fixed. And I bet for some of us today, Maybe we feel that way, not about our house, but our life. Some area of our life, we kind of have that, that, that tension that I felt of, man, my marriage right now, Drew, there's, there's no coming back from that. My thought life, something in your life is at that place where you're like, ah, there's no coming back from this. And what's interesting, as we end the story of Nehemiah, as we end the story, if you haven't been with us, we've been in a series called Ruin, where we've been walking through the story of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah started in Babylon, where he went back to Jerusalem. God called him back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And he rebuilt them in, in, with obstacles in the way in 52 days. But that project led to a bigger project, where he invested in the hearts of the nation of Israel. And he finished the job. And he heads back to Babylon because God's work was done. But what's interesting about the story of Nehemiah is it doesn't end the way we all think it would. It doesn't end all happy and exciting. In fact, the story of Nehemiah ends really anticlimactic and depressing, much like my story. And what I want you to know up front as we begin to jump into the end of this story is the ending of this story is really a piece of an even greater story. The ending of the story of Nehemiah is a piece of an even greater story. And so Nehemiah, he leaves 
Israel. He goes back to Babylon and everything is good. And we pick up the story in Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you're using one of the Northridge Bibles, it's going to be on page 394. You can jump there in your app or you can follow along on your notes. Nehemiah chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 6. It says this, but while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. And so that's setting the stage for us. Nehemiah finished building the wall. Nehemiah finished building the hearts of the, the nation of Israel. They're coming back to God. And so Nehemiah looks at the, the, his circumstances. He looks up to God and he says, okay, God, I've, I've completed the work that you have wanted to do through me in Jerusalem. I'm going to go back. Remember, he's the cupbearer to the king, and so his vacation, his extended vacation is over. He's got responsibilities to go back to, and so Nehemiah leaves Jerusalem in great hands. It's in a great condition, and he heads back to Babylon to his job. And we don't know the time period. We don't know how long Nehemiah was back in Babylon, but we do know some things that give us kind of a glimpse. The trip from Jerusalem to Babylon, to Susa, was about 1,100 miles. It would take, in that culture, two months. So to travel from Jerusalem back to his job, it took him two months to get there. It was 1,100 miles. To put it into perspective in our culture, that's like a trip from Rochester to Tampa Bay, Florida. Except you're not in a plane. You're kind of like riding with the Amish here. You know, it's, it's going to take a while to get there. And so Nehemiah goes back, it takes him two months to get back, and it would take him two months to get back to Jerusalem, so that's four months. So we can guess that Nehemiah was probably gone for at least six months to a year, and as he's back in Babylon, he thinks Jerusalem is awesome. It's doing great. I left it in perfect shape, but then he begins to hear rumors that the nation of Israel goes, that the people of Israel go back on their promises, Remember that promise they committed to God that we will never neglect the house of God? Well, over the course of Nehemiah leaving, Israel starts to go back and wander into the old ways of things. And so Nehemiah begins to journey back. It says this, sometime later, I asked his permission, that's the king Artaxerxes, and came back to Jerusalem. And so in verse 4, we find out all that's going to go wrong with what Nehemiah did. It says, before this, Elishib, the priest who had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God, he was closely associated with Tobiah, and he provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priest. Here I learned about this evil thing Elishab had done in providing Tobiah a room for the courts of the house of God. So Nehemiah journeys back to Jerusalem. And the first thing that he sees is the house of God, one of the courts where they would store the, the offerings of grain and olive oil, a place where this was the location that would often provide for the Levites who were priests in this day age. That would be their payment. And Nehemiah comes back and he finds Elisha, the priest, had made room in the house of God for Tobiah. Now, you might not remember who Tobiah was, but Tobiah is an enemy of Nehemiah. 
Tobiah, also known from Aaron Hickson as Toby, he was the guy who was trying to get Nehemiah to stop building the wall. He was the guy trying to get in the way of what God wanted to do in Jerusalem. And here a priest of Israel is now making space in God's house for an enemy of God. And Nehemiah's like, what the heck is going on? This is a guy who opposed what God wanted to do, and you've made room in God's house? He was also an Ammonite. An Ammonite was apart from the nation of Israel, and so now we're bringing other tribes, pagan tribes, into the house of God. And this is what Scripture says. It says, Elisha, the priest, it says, he was closely associated with Tobiah. I find that interesting, that a priest of God would closely be a best friend with someone who is opposed to God. Just doesn't make sense, does it? But yet how often in our lives do we do the same thing? Where we get really close with people who aren't gonna push us to God, but they're actually gonna drag us away from God. And I think in life, who you associate with, and I don't mean your acquaintances, I mean the people in your life who you allow to speak into your life, who you allow to to coach you and lead you, those people are really important because at the end of the day, your friends will determine the quality and the direction of your life. Do you realize that? That's, that's really important, who you hang around and who you allow to speak into your marriage and who you allow to invest in you and coach you and lead you. Those will be the people that really determine the quality of your life and the direction your life is going. And I think sometimes we just kind of, we really don't think that much about that. Like who I hang around and who my best friends are really are going to steer which way my life goes. And that's why as a church, we don't, we don't say Northridge, at Northridge Church we offer small groups. No, we say Northridge Church is a, is a church consisting of small groups. And that's why we push you to community groups over and over again because we want to surround you. We want to put you in a place where you are associating with people who will push you towards the gospel and towards God rather than away from it. That's why it's so important because your friends will determine the quality and direction of your life. And obviously, Elisha missed it. Because here he is associating with an enemy of God and he wondered why his life was wandering from God. Some of us, we don't realize this, but the reason why we're not following God today is because the people we've surrounded ourselves with, they're actually pushing us away from God. And we need to make a change. And look what Nehemiah does. I, I love this. It says, I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put them back into the equipment of the house of God and with the grain offering and the incense. Nehemiah sees this and he says, hey, Tobiah, good news. This is your eviction notice. Get the heck out because you don't belong in the house of God. And some of you, you need to tell some of your friends who are influencing you the way away from God. You need to just say, hey, get out. I can't do this anymore. Do it nicer than that, just for reference. Like, don't go in the name of, of Jesus. My pastor said, get out of my life. Nah, it's probably not a good idea. But I'm just saying, some of us, we have to look at our lives and say, wow, who am I surrounding myself with? Nehemiah was like, no, this isn't, this isn't right. Tobiah, you gotta go, and we're gonna restore it back to the way it was. But that wasn't the only place that Nehemiah saw things were going wrong. Verse 10, it says, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. And all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? So the second thing Nehemiah notices is that the Levites, 
And now a Levite in this culture was the priest. They were the people who were set apart. Their tribe was set apart to take care of the house of of God. They were much like pastors today. And so their full-time job was to take care of the temple, to take care of the services of God's house. And so what happens here is Nehemiah notices that all the Levites, the priests, have gone back to their fields because they're not being able to take care of their family because the offerings, the tithes, weren't being taken care of. You see, in this culture, the tithes, people would tithe out of their crops and their grains and their olive oils, and they would give them to the temple, and that was, that was there to take care of the priests so they could fully d- devote their life to the house of God. And Nehemiah's like, wait, hold on a second. These things aren't happening. And he asks this question. He says, why is the house of God being neglected? And those were penetrating words to the people of Israel. Because that was the promise they made in chapter 10. You remember last week where we talked about change and, and the people of Israel starting to change and they made this promise, they made this commitment. It was actually a binding contract. In verse 10, this was what the contract said, we will not neglect the house of our God. But here they are doing it. And as, as I read this this week, man, I, I found myself judging the people of Israel. I was like, seriously? Come on, guys. Like, you made a promise to God. Why aren't you keeping it? I mean, you signed your name to it. You, you drew a contract up and you said, God, this is what we're going to do. We're not going to neglect you. We're going to stay faithful to you. We promise. Here's our names. And here they are walking away from that promise. And I, I found myself judging them. Like, what's wrong with you guys? But yet, as I was feeling this way, it was like God hit me with a two by four. Because he reminded me of all the times in my prayer life where I said, God, I promise I'll never do that again. And a day later, here I was. Or a week later. I mean, we've all been there before. Like, God, I promise I won't talk to my wife that way. God, I promise never to go to that site again. God, I promise I'm committing, God. I'm not going to do this again. And whether it's a day or a week or a month or a year, we find ourselves breaking that promise. We've all been there before. And I felt I was judging the nation of Israel, but then I realized, like, man, I'm, I'm just like them. How often do I do that? Where I promise God something and I break it the very next week. But also, can you imagine how Nehemiah feels? I mean, can you really imagine, like, Nehemiah comes back, he's invested a good chunk of his life to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the hearts of the nation of Israel, and he comes back from all his life's work, and he comes back, and everything that he has done is destroyed. All his hard work of rebuilding the nation of Israel is, is gone. I mean, he's like, and, and I think in these moments, we've been there before. I think we can, we can feel that pain that Nehemiah has felt because for a lot of you as small group leaders or community group leaders, for a lot of you, you've invested in people. Maybe you've invested into somebody's marriage or you've invested in another guy or, or gal that was struggling in life and you've poured your life into them and you prayed for them and for a season of life, they got it. They started walking with God. They started following God. But over the course of life, somewhere they decided to completely walk away and give up on everything you taught them. And you were like, ah, What happened? I invested so much time into this person and now they're just going to walk away? I mean, we've been there before. Where we've loved on somebody and cared for somebody and prayed for somebody and it all just went haywire. And it hurts. And the truth about life is people are going to let you down. I mean, if you live life long enough, you'll realize that someone's going to let you down. In fact, for some of you, that's why you don't like the church. 
It's because a pastor let you down or, or a leader in the church let you down. And the reality is, is people in life are going to let us down. That's why we don't place our faith and our trust fully in people. That's why it belongs to God, because he never lets us down. But in this moment, I want us to understand something. When people let you down, it doesn't mean God has. It doesn't mean God has. I think in, in Nehemiah's life, it would have been easy for him as he comes back to Jerusalem and he sees everything that he's done failing, it would have been easy for him to look up at God and say, why did you waste my time in bringing me here? God, why would you use a majority of my life to rebuild your walls and to help these people and now it's just all falling apart? Why, why would you call me to this? And I think a lot of times in life when we invest in somebody and it falls apart, it's easy for us to look up at God and blame him. Why did, you, why did you lead me to this person when you knew it wasn't going to work? But I want you to understand something. Just because that person let you down, it doesn't mean God didn't use you. It doesn't mean that God let you down. In fact, Nehemiah is going to see this later on in the story, but he sees more that's going wrong. Verse 15, it says, In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath? And so Nehemiah notices another thing. There's people working on the Sabbath. They're, they're loading on donkeys. And, and, and what's interesting is this point here, it doesn't really translate to our culture because we don't really celebrate the Sabbath anymore. But in this culture, according to the law, the, God's law, the Mosaic law in Exodus chapter 20, it says this. It says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. And so according to the law, a Israelite was supposed to work six days. The Sabbath was known as Saturday. Every single Saturday, they were commanded by God to not work, to not do work at all. Like it was, it was against, it was sin to work on the Sabbath. And here Nehemiah comes and everybody's working on the Sabbath. He's like, what are you doing? You're desecrating the, 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 the day the Lord had set aside. You're breaking God's law. And then it continues and it even gets worse. It says in verse 23, it says, moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had been married, who had married women from Ashdod and Ammon and Moab, Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the languages of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. And so just to make the matter even worse, Nehemiah finds men who have married into pagan tribes, tribes of Ashdod and Moabite. These are tribes that don't believe in God. They worship many gods. And so Nehemiah sees these men who have married women from these different tribes who don't worship God. And now their children, it's passing on from generation to generation. And now the children don't speak the language of the true God. And Nehemiah at this point is, is so frustrated that he, he, he just goes after these guys. I mean, he literally beats them and it says he pulls out their hair. I mean, can you imagine that for a second? You know, can you imagine if your campus pastor just saw you just walking away from God and we just said, you know, we have a new policy in our church. If you start walking away from God, we're going to follow you, beat you, and pull out your hair. <laughs> wow. Probably for a lot of us, we'd follow God a little closer, right? <laughs> but I mean, Nehemiah, poor Nehemiah. 
And he gets to the, to the end, and he's like, I mean, he leaves Jerusalem, and he's like, man, God, you did some amazing things. But then he comes back, and he sees all his work falling apart. Talk about a depressing end to the story of Nehemiah, right? This is the end. This isn't the Bible, is it? Like, Bible stories are supposed to end with success. Well, you know, like Noah. I mean, Noah built an ark, and he surfed the waves, and a rainbow, and it was beautiful. I mean, that's how the Bible's supposed to end, right? It's not supposed to be depressing like this. Hey, Nehemiah, great job, but it didn't work. The end of the story. What? But I told you at the beginning of this message that some, this, this story is really a part of a greater story. See, Nehemiah ends depressing, but it's pointing somewhere. The story of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, is a setup to Jesus. And I think we have to understand that as we read some of the Old Testament, that it's really just setting up to the greatest moment in history where our Savior came. And in Nehemiah, it's this setup to Jesus in a couple ways. The first way is in this time frame, they were prophesied of a Messiah. A Messiah was supposed to come, and, and they were waiting for this Messiah. And probably for some Jews and Israelites, they thought Nehemiah was it. But then when his plan foiled, they realized it wasn't him. But this story also reminds us really the truth about us. And it's a truth that we don't want to face. It's a truth that we don't like to hear. But it's the reality. This story reminds us that as us, the, the role we play in this story isn't Nehemiah's. It's Israel's. We're the ones who wander from God. We're the ones who are disobedient. We're the ones who don't get it right. And when we promise God everything, we usually end up going a different direction. This is what the Bible says, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20. It says, indeed, there is not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good and never sins. Well, let that encourage you this morning, right? Hey, good news. We're all in the same boat. You can try as hard as you want, but there is none righteous. Eventually you'll fall. Romans 3.10, another encouraging verse. There is none righteous, not even one. Yes! I'm going to walk out of church today and be like, woohoo, I stink. <laughs> but there's truth to this. And the truth is, is that we are all broken in need of someone greater. We're all sinners. And I know I don't like to hear that. You don't like to hear that. But as much as I try to avoid that, it's the truth. It is. I'm broken. You're broken. And here's where it gets tricky. Because I think for a lot of us, we know that. Like, I've heard that. I'm broken. I'm a sinner. I get that. I can see it in my life every single day. I don't need a reminder in church that I'm broken. But here's where it gets tricky. In our brokenness, we think, okay, I'm going to fix it. And so we try. Rightfully so. If something's broken, I want to fix it. And so we try to live as best as we can. We try to be the best husband and best wife. We try to follow God and read our Bible as much as we can. And we try and we try and we try, but it gets really hard because as much as we try, we keep slipping back. We keep sinning. And the truth is, is you can try as hard as you want to fix your brokenness. 
and you will never be able to fix it. The repair is beyond you and beyond me. And so for a lot of us, we've been wasting our life trying to fix, trying to cover up, trying to work out our disobedience and our sin. And I promise you, you can give it all you got and you can go for it as hard as you want, but eventually you will fail. That's where it gets tricky. Knowing we're broken, but knowing we can't fix it. That's hard. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need a savior to rescue us. I remember standing in the water, looking at the house that I just spent a majority of my life fixing. And I remember how beautiful it was. But now I'm standing there, looking at drywall, collapsing, hardwood floors, buckling. And I literally was like, I can't come back from this. This is the end. And probably for some of you, that's how you feel about your life right now or an area of your life. Maybe today it's a relationship that's been broken. Maybe it's you and your kids, you and your spouse, you and a coworker, or you're like, God, you don't get it. I've tried everything I can as a parent, as a spouse, and it's not working. It can't be fixed. Maybe today it's your thought life. Like, I prayed to get the lust out. I said, God, I'll do anything, but it's beyond repair. Maybe it's the negativity. You're like, I try to think positive thoughts, but I can't do it. Maybe it's your sexuality. You just feel like you've given yourself away so many times that you can't recover. It's your reputation. You made poor decision after poor decision and you can't survive it. Maybe you're addicted to drugs and alcohol or whatever it is. And you look at that area of your life and you're just like, listen, it's too broken. It's too ugly. There is no coming back. It's probably how Nehemiah felt. God, <laughs> I did all I could. And it ended the same way where I picked it off. Broken. I mean, the wall is shattered. <laughs> and man, as we wind down Nehemiah, if you only remember one thing out of this series, I want you to remember this. Six weeks of walking through a story, just take one point home with you. Jesus, our redeemer. Jesus, our rescuer. Jesus, the one son of God who put his life on the line, who hung on a cross. Jesus, whose blood was shed. Jesus, whose body was broken for you. That Jesus... Now you think about whatever area in your life you think is too far gone or too dirty. I want you to remember the name of Jesus because Jesus specializes in restoring ruined things.
I got my acceptance letter. Um, I remember I was I was at my friend's house and I had already received a bunch of letters from colleges that were, you know, little envelopes saying no, no, no. And my parents called me and uh, they were like, there's a big envelope here. It was from Clemson. And Clemson was a school I'd always wanted to go to from since I was in high school. When that big packet came and I saw that, I was, you know, overjoyed. It was awesome. I moved down to Clemson and immediately I didn't really fit in because I was so different and from such a different place. Um, I tried to get into all the fraternities, no one let me in, so I became very isolated. You know, my dream school, the school that I was so excited to get into from the time I was little, and I had all these great and grand expectations turned out to be not what I was expecting and not what I was looking for. And, um, you know, I was definitely crushed by it. When I was down in Clemson, my girlfriend had moved down with me. You know, my whole life I'd been into recreational drugs. Now, instead of just being me isolated down there, it was me and her isolated down there. Um, and we both had very similar bad habits. So you take two people and stick them in a, in a small apartment where they have no one else around them, and um, our bad habits multiplied upon each other. As I felt more and more empty, more and more alone, more and more sad over getting, not doing good in school, having a bad relationship, getting bad grades, um, being isolated, as those feelings increased, so did my drug addiction and so did my drug use. By the time I was in my fourth year down there, I was um, a full-blown Oxycontin addict. I was getting physically sick if I didn't didn't have them. I got in some major, some real trouble down there, got into methamphetamine, and after being up for many days, I um, drove my truck to go pay my rent because we were going to get evicted from our apartment. And on the ride home, I rear-ended a car at 60 miles an hour. That was the, the red flag for my parents to say, okay, enough is enough. They kind of already knew that something was going on from their phone calls and from how I was acting and the things I was saying, not to mention my grades had went from like a 3.8 to like a 1.6 and had just dived. After I left Clemson, I came home and next was an on-again, off-again, four and a half year struggle with heroin addiction, methamphetamine addiction. I finally got arrested um, for possession and ended up doing six months in Monroe County Jail. So I felt completely hopeless. I felt like I had started at such a high, you know, by all means my life was going skyrocketing upwards when I was at Clemson. And now I was sitting in a jail cell with nothing, knowing that I had caused unbelievable pain and agony to anyone and everyone that had come in contact with me. And I felt like my life was completely ruined. What 
the first week that I was in jail, that was definitely the lowest point of my life. I had lost everything I owned. I had destroyed my family, not just hurt them from me, but also caused rifts in their relationships. After being in there for a while, I used to go to uh, church services on, the Sunday, on Sundays. But we, we had some good speakers come in, and uh, the, the one speaker started talking about the flesh and the spirit, and he mentioned um, Romans 8.5. My ears perked up, and I started paying attention to what they were saying. And they gave this whole sermon on the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. And my entire life, I had never ever thought about my spirit or my flesh. Um, I had never given my spirit a single second of thought. All I had ever cared about was what made my body feel good, what made me feel good. I felt something pushing me to pursue this one, right? I felt something pushing me to take that class. I felt something pushing me to, to read the Bible and to talk to my friend a little bit. And, um, you know, it, it was just the beginnings. It gave me hope for the future. It, it gave me thought that maybe this this is what I've been missing this whole time. And I knew at that moment, I knew God was there helping me and it gave me some kind of comfort. He's also restored my relationships. Um, he's helped my relationships with my family. They continue to get better and better all the time. Well, that's one of the ways he's worked on me and worked with me is to help me understand the impact that I can have on others and the impact that my life can have on others, especially my family. My life has been nowhere close to perfect, I, and I, <laughs> I still stumble a lot, but God has blessed me over and over and over again. That lonely feeling that I had in Clemson, that isolation that I felt throughout so much of my life when I was using drugs, when I was down in college, I feel like I don't ever have to have that anymore. No matter, because when I have fallen, when I have made mistakes, I've always felt like God is there with me. God is there to help me through it. And I don't ever have to be scared or terrified or feel alone again. Washed in the blood of your sacrifice, your blood for
coming and it still broke me because that's my story and that's your story and because of Jesus everything that's been broken in me because of my own choices because of my sin Jesus took me from ruined and he restored me he gave me life and it wasn't something that I could fix. It was everything that Jesus did on the cross for me. And that is our story. And maybe you're here today and you're trying to fix your own wall, but it keeps falling apart. And the truth is, is you can try and try and try, but eventually this won't be complete until you fall and surrender to Jesus and man maybe you're here today and you've been trying to fix the ruined things in your life but today you realize that you need Jesus to forgive you of your disobedience and to lead you in a different direction and if that's you, please, we would love to talk to you. Your campus pastor would love to talk to you. Your community group leader, whoever invited you, would love to have that conversation with you. Don't leave here today without letting God, starting that restoring process where you surrender to him as your savior. But for a lot of us, we know Christ. We know him. But to, we, every single day, we have to preach to ourselves this message. That God, even though I feel ruined, he restored me. And that gives us access to the power to overcome broken marriages, to overcome addictions, to overcome whatever you're facing in life. The power of Jesus will help you restore those broken areas in your life. But you got to preach to yourself every single day the gospel. you got to live it out. Man, thank you, Jesus, that you restore us. A couple things you need to know before we leave at all of our campuses. If you haven't been baptized, maybe you're going to get saved today and baptized next week. We will rejoice with you. If you haven't been baptized and you feel like that's the next step you need to take, man, sign up on that connection card. Put your ba the baskets as you leave. Put the connection cards in the baskets as you leave. If you've never been to a night of worship, we're having a night of worship tonight right here at the Rondacoy campus. Man, if you've never been to one, you should come. They are amazing. You don't know what you're missing until you get here. And we're gonna continue on this theme of being restored. So come here tonight, six at the Rondacoy campus. And so at all of our locations, thank you for worshiping with us. We hope you leave here encouraged and we will see you back next week. You are dismissed. Have a wonderful day. Mm -hmm.